This is lecture number four on Deuteronomy by Robert Benoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number four. Last week, under Roman numeral two, which is the authorship and date of Deuteronomy, we surveyed critical approaches. Capital D is challenges to the classic Wellhausen position from various directions. And number one under that was trying to move that 621 B.C. date to a later post-exilic time. Number two of the outline was advocates of a date earlier than 621, but during the monarchical period. And that would be people like Welch and von Rad. And then number three was also pre-monarchical, pushing it earlier, even earlier than the kingdom period, but not all the way back to the mosaic period. E. Robinson and R. Brinker both developed the theory that Samuel was basically the one who was behind the compilation of the book of Deuteronomy. And so that brings us to number four of the outline, advocates of a mosaic date for Deuteronomy. That certainly is the traditional view that the Bible itself presents to us. I'm not going to do anything other than just mention some names, but what you see there is a sequence of people that span from early 1900s right up to the present time with people who accept the Mosaic authorship. James Zor, the first one, wrote The Problem of the Old Testament, and that was 1906, and argued basically for a Mosaic origin for Deuteronomy. H.M. Viner wrote two books, one in 1912 and the other in 1920. The one in 1912 was called Pentateuchal Studies, and the one in 1920 called The Main Problem of Deuteronomy. So we see already Weiner is focusing on Deuteronomy as a critical issue for defending Mosaic authorship. J. Ritterboss wrote a commentary on Deuteronomy, two volumes, one in 1950 and one in 1951. It was written in Dutch. I believe it's recently been translated by Zondervan in that Bible Students Commentary Series. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's the English translation of a Dutch series of commentaries. Most of the Dutch commentaries were written in the 1950s and early 60s, and they're gradually producing them in English. Just a comment on J. Ritterboss. J. Ritterboss, the name Ritterboss may be as familiar to you primarily from the work of Hermann Ritterboss, who was a New Testament professor in Holland and who wrote An Outline of Paul's Theology, which is a major work that has been translated, plus he wrote some commentaries. Hermann Ritterboss was the son of J. Ritterboss. J. Ritterboss, the father, was a professor of Old Testament. I've mentioned this in some of my other classes. He had two sons. One was N. H. Ritterboss. The other was H. N. Ritterboss. Herman was professor of New Testament, and he's the one most English-speaking people are familiar with. Nico was a professor of Old Testament, and J. Ritterboss was Old Testament as well. But Nico Ritterboss was the man I studied with. He is now dead, but in any case, J. Ritterboss, the father, defended Mosaic authorship of Deuteronomy. And then, about the same time, G.C.H. Alders, also Dutch, wrote an Old Testament introduction which hasn't been translated into English yet. His short introduction to the Pentateuch, as it's called, has been translated into English. He defends the Mosaic origin. 
Otialas to get to this country for many years a professor at Princeton and later at Westminster in the early days of Westminster Seminary wrote The Five Books of Moses. It's a good treatment of Pentateuchal criticism and that was written in 1943. You're up to the Second World War era now. And then E.J. Young, a professor at Westminster Seminary, wrote his Old Testament introduction. The first edition was 1949, that was later revised and updated in 1960. He also defended the mosaic origin of Deuteronomy. More recently, R.K. Harrison's massive work, Introduction to the Old Testament, in 1969, also defends the mosaic authorship of Deuteronomy. So, my purpose of giving you those names is just to show you that over this whole period of a century of time, where this mosaic authorship has been attacked, there have been those that have defended the mosaic position all along. I say that they're all pretty much the same, although with Alders he would allow for a few of what he termed post-mosaic phrases here and there, particularly at the end of Deuteronomy with the account of Moses' death, which I don't have any objection to either. That has been appended to the book subsequent to its completion, but Alders finds a few other phrases here and there that he feels were post-mosaic, which I'm not sure are necessary. But generally, all of these authors are very conservative. Student question. So is it fair to say, then, that this mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is a very foundational position in determining conservative books? Lenoy's answer. Yes, I think so you do find some evangelicals going towards accepting some degree or another some of this as post-mosaic material. You see, that's the shame of the thing. You take the Dutch situation, for example. You can trace it in three steps. Alders was very strong mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. He argued against the JADP theory two times end. He allowed for a few of these post-mosaic kinds of things that I mentioned before, like recording the death of Moses. His successor in that chair was Nico Ritterbos, who went a step further and would allow sources in the Pentateuch, maybe some, and he would feel the Pentateuch was completed probably by the early kingdom period. So you see, you're not moving down. He didn't buy the JDP thing wholesale, but he did make much more concession to it than Alders did. The guy in the chair now is a man named Cornelius Hellman. He almost bought the whole JEDP approach. But you could hardly call his view even evangelical in terms of its view of scripture. So in three steps, in three generations you might say, three professorships, you move from a conservative position to a totally liberal position. That's the way history seems to go. You start, you open the door this much, and then it opens more and more, and the original position is gone. This whole thing is very involved and very complex. I think there are philosophical things behind it. There are probably intellectual questions of intellectual integrity. They often begin, here's a question, and we don't have an adequate answer for it, so we have to concede that this point is like this or like that. To me, it's the basic view of Scripture that is behind how one feels about JDP. Where do you get your view of Scripture? Do you get your view of Scripture and what the Scripture itself claims, in the attitude of Christ that he had towards the Old Testament Scriptures? 
It is a deductive process or method. You get your view deductively that way, or you get it inductively by looking at all these problems, one by one, and you hold off until you can solve all of them. So you don't come to the conclusion that the scripture is reliable. I think a lot of these men work with that kind of methodology. Then they feel they can't say the scripture is totally reliable because they don't have an answer to this or that problem, and then they feel that it's a matter of intellectual integrity. I don't think I would even question Hellman's Christianity because I know the fellow. He's a godly fellow, but his views of Scripture are totally different from ours. And I think it's because of the way Scripture is approached. I should add to that, although it's not on your list, there are a couple more books to mention. Let me go further. G.T. Manley wrote a book called The Book of the Law, Studies in the Date of Deuteronomy, and that was in 1957. That's in your bibliography. I'll come and make some comments on that book. B. Halwerda is Dutch. Again, unfortunately, this hasn't been translated. But page 5, under Centralization of Worship in Deuteronomy, you will see B. Halwerda's name there, and that's the fourth entry. And the title there in Dutch is, and I've translated it, the place that the Lord shall choose. He discusses that phrase in Deuteronomy 12 and the implications of it in the centralization issue that is at the heart of Wellhausen's theory. I'll come back to that later also. And then, of course, we have Meredith Klein, who wrote The Treaty of the Great King. His book is listed on page 4 under Deuteronomy and the treaty form, The Treaty of the Great King, Covenant Structure of Deuteronomy, Studies and Commentary. That's the whole title. That was in 1963. Lastly, I should add to that Peter C. Craigie, which is one of the commentaries that you'll read in the introduction for this course. In the new international commentary on the Old Testament and the book of Deuteronomy, published in 1976, Craigie argues for Mosaic origin. So that's the most recent, detailed, good, solid academic commentary that's argued for the Mosaic position. J. Thompson backs up the Mosaic date. I'll come back and talk a little bit more about him, but he feels that the final form that we presently have of Deuteronomy is post-Mosaic. I don't fully understand why he comes to that conclusion, but we'll discuss that later. McConville also argues basically for Mosaic origin. Now, of those from that list of people, I'd like to mention four people in that list who were working on different aspects of the Deuteronomy question, but whose works complement one another in confirming a mosaic origin for the work. I think it's significant that in the last 25 years there has been new ground broken, you might say, on the question. So even though it's been debated for a whole century in the last 25 years, in some cases, like McConnell's book, quite recently, there has been some new work done that tends to confirm and to increase the legitimacy of the argument for mosaic origin. There are four people whose work together, I think, provides a strong case for reconsideration for this whole JDP theory, and particularly Deuteronomy's place in it. I'll take them in order. First, the Dutchman Halwerda. As I mentioned, he focuses on the issue of centralization of worship that relates to Wellhausen's theory. 
He particularly discusses the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 12, which is a key chapter for Wellhausen's theory. That's part of the reason why I wanted you to translate chapter 12 of Deuteronomy and look rather carefully at it. We're going to discuss that in class in another week or two, but Halwerda addresses that centralization issue. Then the second person is G.T. Manley in his book, the full title of which is The Book of the Law, Studies of the Date of Deuteronomy. He handles a number of questions there, including the centralization issue, but he's particularly strong in discussing the alleged development and relationship between J.E. and D. and then the P. law codes. These three law codes, J.E., D., and P., according to the Wellhausen theory, have a developmental relationship between them. What he does is compare material in what is called J.E. and what is called D. and what is called P. He compares that material and points up numerous problems with a developmental theory. So, you know, even though on the surface it may sound impressive, Manley points up some problems with that kind of idea of developmental theology in his book. Then third is Meredith Klein. The strength of Meredith Klein is a totally different perspective. He works with the literary form of the book of Deuteronomy. He looks at both its form and content from the perspective of the analogy with particularly the Hittite treaty text, and he finds that there is close correspondence between the Hittite treaty text and the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. The Hittite treaty texts are to be dated approximately to the Mosaic era, and certainly not 600 BC or so. So I want to go into more detail with you on Klein's position. But what he uses is what you would really call a form-critical analysis to argue for a mosaic origin by finding an extra-biblical analogy in precisely the time that Deuteronomy represents itself to have been written. I think he makes a good case for that. I think he has a fairly strong argument. You can't speak in terms of proof. I don't think you can use arguments like that to prove beyond any question mosaic dates for the composition of the book, but you certainly can create a model that fits with the date and that supports a mosaic date for the authorship. And then the fourth person is Gordon McConville in the book that you're reading, which is called Law and Theology in Deuteronomy. Now, basically, in McConville's book, instead of viewing the laws in relation to the laws elsewhere in the Pentateuch, showing how D purportedly relates to J.E. or D relates to P., McConville focuses primarily on Deuteronomy's laws as uniquely reflecting the theology of Deuteronomy. He says there's a theology behind all these laws, and the laws reflect that theology. The next step in his argument is he finds the theology to be reflective of the concerns of Israel at the time that they were about to enter the Promised Land, which, of course, then would be the time of Moses, or towards the end of Moses' life. They're about to enter the Promised Land. He finds that behind the laws are the issues that reflect that sort of situation and a theology that pertains to that situation where they're about to cross over into the Promised Land. So you see, what he's getting at is the theology behind the book, which he says fits with the time and circumstances of Moses. So you get McConville looking at Deuteronomy from a theological perspective. You get Klein looking at it from a form-critical, structural perspective. You get Manley, who looks at the Wellhausen theory and shows problems with that kind of approach. 
And then you get Hallward, who works with the centralization of the worship issue. So what I'm saying is a lot of these recent studies in the book of Deuteronomy complement one another in reconfirming a mosaic origin to the book. If you look at your bibliography, page 5, I have there Centralization of Worship in Deuteronomy. There's the article by Kundal, that is, Sanctuaries, Central and Local in Pre-Exilic Israel, with particular reference to the book of Deuteronomy. That's a helpful article. And McConville, Chapter 2, that's labeled, The Altar Law and Centralization of the Cult. And then there's Wenham, in another article that you're reading. The article is called, The Date of Deuteronomy, Lynchpin in Old Testament Criticism, and that's in Familios in 1985. Those are three helpful articles. I might also pull your attention at this point to the third entry on page 6, which has just come out, and that's N.J. Paul. Now, that's in Dutch, too. This is a 1988 dissertation, and it's entitled The Archimedean Point of Pentateuchal Criticism. And what he's talking about is dating Deuteronomy. The whole dissertation is on this, where he's basically arguing for a mosaic origin, so that's really exciting. I just got a copy about two weeks ago, just before this course started. I just wanted to call your attention to these four people, particularly. And you're reading Klein McConville. I'm going to discuss Klein at some point, because I think that his argument is a crucial one. I'm also going to discuss Hallward. I'm not going to be able to do much with McConville or Manley. You're going to be reading McConville. Manley, unfortunately, is out of print, so it's hard to use it, but I just want to call your attention to it in case you ever are able to lay hands on it. So let's go on to Roman numeral 3 on your outline. And that's the covenant form of the book of Deuteronomy and its historical implication. Now much of what I'm going to say under Roman numeral 3 comes from Meredith Klein's work, and that's his Treaty of the Great King. Now, A in the outline is the structural integrity of the book, and that has been often questioned. Bellhausen said that there was an original core to the book of Deuteronomy, which he said was chapters 12 to 26. So you see, chapters 1 to 11 then, and 27 to 34, Bellhausen felt were later accretions. The original core of the book was not mosaic, and of course, it was late. But what he's saying is that structurally you don't have unity in the book. There's an original core of chapters 12 to 26. The rest of it was added later. In other words, later than 621 B.C. Klein says of Adam Welch, who was one of the men we discussed under advocates of the date earlier than 621, but during the monarchical period, Klein says, and I'm quoting him here, Welch finds confusion throughout the book, but deems the framework, and particularly, so hopelessly disordered that he declares it misleading to speak of an editor, since that would suggest that a degree of order had been introduced into the chaos. End quote. That's Adam Welch's estimate of Deuteronomy, so chaotic that there's no structural unity or order to it. He doesn't even want to talk about an editor, because he thinks that would suggest a degree of order that had been introduced in the book, but which Welch does not find. Another problem often discussed by these critical scholars is what is termed the two introductions for the book. Many of these writers say that Deuteronomy has two introductions. They say that there's one introduction in chapters 1 to 4, 
And then there's another one in chapters 5 to 11. It's a redundancy, they say, two introductions. Giernus Wright wrote the commentary on Deuteronomy in the Interpreter's Bible series, which is a pretty standard critical commentary from the 1960s, I believe. Wright, Interpreter's Bible, Volume 2, says of these two introductions, and I'm quoting him here, neither needs the other. They seem independent of each other. End quote. And then he adopts a view originally advocated by Martin Noth that Deuteronomy is really not to be taken as a part of the Pentateuch, but it's the first book of what Martin Noth calls the Deuteronomistic history. It runs from Deuteronomy to the end of Second Kings. So we have Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Deuteronomy is the first book of that corpus of material, according to Noth, and he feels that it was written or edited by one individual in late post-exilic times. What he says, then, is that Deuteronomy is the first book of that Deuteronomistic history, and that Deuteronomy, chapters 1 to 4, is the introduction to that Deuteronomistic history as a whole, whereas chapters 5 to 11 is an introduction to just the book of Deuteronomy. But I just mentioned some of those things to point out that the structural integrity of the book has often been questioned. In other words, a lot of these critical scholars come to the book and they don't find a coherent structure to the book. So, as I've said, the Deuteronomistic history is from Deuteronomy to the end of Kings. Of course, the reason why you'd call that Deuteronomistic history is because the theology that's reflected through the historical narratives follows the theology of Deuteronomy, interestingly enough. Now, of course, what you're saying is that it's kind of theological schema that's been imposed on earlier history because Deuteronomy wasn't around until 621. So how would you find the history of Deuteronomy influencing, let's say, the period of the Judges if the book wasn't written until 621 B.C.? Well, they'd say that the whole period of the Judges has been recast or described in a way that reflects the theology of Deuteronomy. There is a very real Deuteronomistic influence throughout all of those books, and of course, if you put it where it belongs, in the Mosaic era, you would expect there to be Deuteronomistic influence through all those books. All right, B on your sheet is Gerhard von Rad, who called attention to the significance of Deuteronomy's structural pattern in his book, Problem of the Hesatuch, which was written in 1938. I mentioned that when we were looking at challenges to the Wilhausen position. Von Rad argued for a date earlier than 621, but still in the monarchical period. But the interesting thing is part of his argument was found in the structure to the book. That sets him apart from his older critical scholars, or even some of his contemporaries, that found the book to be chaotic. He called attention to the structure of the book as a whole in his Problem of the Hexateuch, pages 26 and 27. I think I mentioned this earlier, but he says, and I'm quoting, Obviously, from the point of view of form criticism, no one would accept any such picture of the origins of Deuteronomy. It is precluded by the recognition of the fact that Deuteronomy is in form an organic whole. End quote. And then he continues, and I'm quoting him again, we may distinguish any number of different strata and accretions by literary criteria, but in the matter of form, various constituents form an indivisible unity. 
The question is thus inescapably raised, what was the original purpose of the form of Deuteronomy as we now have it? End quote. He says structurally the book has four sections. That's in his problem of the Hexateuch, page 27, as I mentioned before. He feels that the book structurally reflects, in chapters 1 to 11, a historical presentation of the events of Sinai and paranetic material connected with those events. Paranetic. Do you know what that is? Paranetic means exhortation. It's from the Greek paranesis. Deuteronomy has that sort of sermonic character to it. It gives exhortations. Then the second section of the treaty is the law, chapters 12 to 26. Chapters 12 to 26 is the legal material. Then he speaks of the sealing of the covenant in chapter 26, verse 16 to 19, and blessings and curses in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and following. So what he concludes is he wants to look at the whole book form critically. What situation would give rise to this sort of form to the book of Deuteronomy? And what he says is, quote, in these four sections, we recognize once again the basic features of what was formerly a cultic ceremony manifestly associated with the same festival which is reflected in the Sinai tradition along with the J.E. document, end quote. So the way he looks at it is he sees the structure and he believes, form critically, there was some sort of cultic festival that produced this kind of literary form that's reflected in Deuteronomy. I'll come back to that view later, but my main reason for calling attention to this is Von Rod is going against the consensus of critical scholars that the book is chaotic. He's saying, no, there is structure. It's different than the source-critical approach and methodology, but has some points of similarity while utilizing different presuppositions. All right, we'll see in the outline. Meredith Klein utilized a form-critical methodology honoring the integrity of Scripture to open a new perspective on the structure of Deuteronomy, which has implications for its interpretation and date. Now, that's all in your outline. What I want to do under little c is summarize Klein's argument. So, number one is a statement of Klein's thesis. And on page 28 of his Treaty of the Great King, he says, and I'm quoting here, the position to be advocated here is that Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document which in its total structure exhibits the classic legal form of the suzerainty treaties of the Mosaic Age. End quote. I think that sentence gives you his thesis. Suzerainty, by the way, refers to being a vassal. So we call these suzerainty treaties or vassal treaties. Well, let's go on to number two of the outline. That's the introduction of his thesis, and it is Klein's outline of Deuteronomy. When Klein looks into the book, he breaks it down into five parts. First, there's a preamble, and that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Second, a historical prologue, or covenant history, and that's from verse 6 in chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 4. Third, are stipulations, or covenant life. And that starts in chapter 5 and goes all the way through chapter 26, verse 19. So basically, it's all of chapter 5 through chapter 26. Now, that breaks down into two subsections, chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 32. In the other words, chapter 5 to 11 is the great or basic commandments. The great commandment basically is, Love the Lord your God, serve him alone, 
covenant loyalty, fundamental obligation of your loyalty to the Lord exclusively. And then B is ancillary commands, and these are the detailed stipulation, and that's chapters 12 through 26. Then fourth, we have sanctions, covenant ratification, chapter 27 to chapter 30, verse 20. That's the section of blessings and cursings and a few other things. Then we have chapters 31 to 34, which is the dynastic disposition or covenant continuity. It is the provision for succession to Joshua on Moses' part or his dynastic disposition. So that's the structure that Meredith Klein sees in the book. The article that I asked you to read by Kenneth Kitchen is really a review of this book by Nicholson. Nicholson rejects the whole covenant analogy, and Kitchen, I think, shows that Nicholson's rejection of Klein's material is unwarranted. Number three of the outline, the standard elements of the Hittite treaty texts. We talked about this analogy between the treaty texts and the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. What is the structure of the treaty texts? Everybody's pretty much agreed if you look at these Hittite treaties, there are some 20 of them, they pretty regularly follow this sort of a structure, and they have five elements to them. A preamble that introduces the great king and gives his name, his titles, and that sort of thing. The historical prologue, which summarizes the previous history of the relationship between the great king and his suzerain, or vassal. The stipulations. These are the obligations that are placed on the vassal. They are placed on the vassal and are based on a sense of obligation to the great king because the great king has done certain things for the vassal. Therefore, the suzerain, or king, has reason to expect that the vassal will reciprocate by adhering to these stipulations. Those stipulations can be divided into two types, basic stipulations and a detailed stipulations section. A basic stipulation is that fundamental obligation of loyalty, and the detailed stipulations spell out all sorts of specific things to be done for the great king. Next, sometimes, but not in all the text, you have a provision for the deposit of the treaty in the sanctuary of the vassal. Sometimes you have provision for periodic reading, so that text is then to be read to the people on certain occasions, and that is done periodically, and this finds a parallel in the mosaic deposit of the copy of the law in the tabernacle, and the reading of the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles, when the law book is taken and read to the people. And then, part four, you have witnesses, and then part five, curses and blessings. The witnesses are the gods who witness the agreement, or covenant. The curses and blessings are the things that these gods will ensure happen to the vassal, if he is either obedient, in which case he will be blessed, or cursed if he is disobedient. It's not incompatible with the book's own representation as coming from Moses. Some have felt there is a tension with this covenant form. It's like the Hittite Treaty, but do you realize that the book presents itself as a series of addresses? What Klein says on page 29 is the treaty document was libretto of the covenant ceremony. The libretto, like the word from musical composition, the libretto of the covenant ceremony sometimes includes the response of the vassal as well as the declaration of the suzerain. When one, therefore, identifies Deuteronomy as a treaty text, we are also recognizing it as a ceremonial word of Moses. 
The customary conception of these mosaic addresses is they are freely ordered farewells modified so that their formal structure closely followed fixed ceremonial legal traditions. So this is certainly no stereotype liturgical recital. In other words, what he's saying is the book reflects a covenant renewal ceremony and the setting is Moses in the plains of Moab leading the people through their renewal of allegiance to the Lord. So understanding it as a covenant renewal document is not incompatible with the book's own representation consisting of a series of addresses that Moses gave on the plains of Moab. There's a formal similarity here with von Rod's approach, but as far as differences, von Rod does not honor the integrity of the book as it is represented in the book itself. He has a highly theoretical cultic derivation theory. What he means by that is, and I've touched on it in the last class, he feels that there was a cultic ceremony held at Shechem under Joshua, and the traditions of that ceremony were carried on through the years and generations by the Levites who, after periodic covenant renewal events, the form of Deuteronomy was devised, and that was fairly late. Now, he feels it is not more than a century before 621 that the final form is set so that he feels that the Shechem ceremony, the ritual of it, and the ideas of it were preserved by the Levites, and eventually the book of Deuteronomy structure was derived from that. So both Klein and Ponrad are using what you might call form-critical methodology in looking at the structure of the book, but Klein is doing it in a way that honors the integrity of the text. Ponrad is not. Well, number six. Deuteronomy begins as the ancient treaty form. And on page 30 of Klein's The Treaty of the Great King, he says, Deuteronomy begins precisely as the ancient treaties began. These are the words of. Those are the first words of the book of Deuteronomy. These are the words of. The Jewish custom of using the opening words of the book as the title turns out in the present case to serve to identify this book at once as a treaty document. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, then go on to identify the speaker of the words as Moses, one who received divine revelation and is communicating the will of the Sovereign Lord to Israel. Yahweh there is a suzerain, who gives the covenant to Moses, who is his vice-regent and covenant mediator. This section thus corresponds to the preamble of the extra-biblical treaty material, the preamble in the treaty is where the great king identifies himself. So this section of the treaty corresponds to the preamble. The biblical treaties also identify the speaker as the one who, by this covenant, is the spokesman. To go on to verse 3, we read, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites what the Lord had commanded him to carry out. So Moses is a spokesman for the Lord. Then we have number 7. Klein's approach to Deuteronomy solving the two introductions problem. He says on page 30 at the bottom of the page, and I quote him again, a major problem concerning the unity of Deuteronomy is the presence of the so-called two introductions, one in chapters 1 to 4 and the others 5 to 11, end quote. Then he discusses that a bit. Klein says, and I quote again here, the two introductions have obviated the real structure of Deuteronomy. A historical prologue regularly follows the preamble and precedes the stipulations of the treaty. And Deuteronomy 1 to 5, that is chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 4, verse 49, 
qualifies admirably as such a historical prologue, end quote. So what Klein is saying is that the two introductions are solved by this understanding of Deuteronomy as a covenant structure, because it appears in other covenant treaties. Chapters 5 to 26 correspond to the stipulation section of the treaty. It is the third division or section of the suzerain. Von Rod has noted the bulk that includes chapters 5 to 27 and start with chapters 1 to 4 as paranetic historical survey material. Others separate chapters 5 to 11 from 1 to 4 with the thought that they are an introduction to the chapters 12 to 26. But Deuteronomy chapters 5 to 11 is to be recognized as expounding a covenant way of life, just as do chapters 12 to 26. Together they declare the suzerain's demands, the basic obligations and detailed obligations. The former section presents a more general comprehensive structure of primary or basic demands. Chapters 12 to 26 present the bulk and add the more specific detailed requirements. He says later on the bottom of page 32, quote, the character of the Deuteronomistic stipulations from 12 to 26, you get the sermonic or paranetic kind of style, end quote. And, quote, the character of the Deuteronomistic stipulation from chapters 12 to 26 exposes the inaccuracy of speaking of a Deuteronomistic author following some rigid stylistic way, end quote. Then he goes on to say, again, I quote, This feature is not without parallel in the form of treaty stipulations in some treaty texts. And he continues, This document will be featured and will be naturally fully exploited by Moses in conducting the renewal ceremony, which was also a personal farewell. End quote. On to number 8 of the outline. I should say that under number 8, this is chapters 5 through 26, are the first phases of the stipulations of the treaties. The treaties were updated, they were customarily modified, and then they were also updated. You do get some differences. For example, in Deuteronomy 5, in the Sabbath command, if you compare the Sabbath command from Deuteronomy 5, say verse 15, with Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there, with his mighty hand, and now the Lord has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. It's a new generation that Moses is addressing. In Exodus chapter 20, the Sabbath command is based on the six days of creation. Exodus chapter 20, about the Sabbath, we read, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh and made it holy. Now, the stipulation is the same between Exodus and Deuteronomy, that is, to observe one day in seven, to observe the Sabbath, but the stated motivation is different. This may be a result of updating to this new generation a feature that was characteristic of the renewal of a treaty. All right, chapters 27 to 30, and that's number nine of the outline. Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 30 follows the standard form of treaties, that present a means of covenant ratification. It is usual to see chapter 26 and following as added material, not part of the original form of the book, but later accretions or appendixes. To say that, as the critics do, however, disregards the structural 
continuity of the treaty pattern. Because in chapters 27 to 30, you have the blessings sanctioned in the covenant. That was a standard feature of the treaty text. Here's the way chapter 27 to 30 breaks down from Klein's view. Here's a more detailed outline. You have chapter 27, verses 1 to 26, and you have ratification ceremony in Canaan. When you get into Canaan, you are to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and there write out the law, and there is to be a ratification ceremony. Then blessings and curses are to be read as per chapter 28. The covenant oath is in chapter 29. So again, that fits well with the structural integrity of the book based on treaty analyses. That was number 9 of the outline. Now number 10, and that is chapters 31 to 34, and they take on great significance as an integral feature of the covenant and are not just appendixes, as the critics would allege. Chapters 31 to 34, in a more detailed way, include final arrangements. In chapter 31, verses 1 to 29, we have the Song of Witness. Witnesses are a structural feature of the treaty form. You get a Song of Witnesses in chapter 31, verse 30, through chapter 32, verse 37. The difference there is that in the Hittite text, the gods would be the witnesses. In Israel, you don't have a polytheistic notion, but you have a song of witness looking forward to days to come, explaining what's going to happen to you if you depart from the stipulation. That's a big part of the book and an important part of the overall structure. Then Moses' testament is in chapter 32, verse 48, to chapter 33, verse 29, where he pronounces his blessings on the tribes. Dynastic succession, then, is in chapter 34, verses 1 to 12, as leadership transitions over to Joshua, which was really the occasion for the whole renewal ceremony. Treaties were renewed at the point of dynastic succession, and here is precisely what is happening on the plains of Moab. Moses is the authority, and he passes the mantle to keep the continuity going forward to Joshua. So again, it is not an entire dependency on the Hittite treaty form, but its structural ideas do add to the integrity of the whole document as being from the time of the Hittites and not from the time of Josiah many, many centuries later. That is lecture number four on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary.